Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your help as we open up your word to read about difficult things and about aspects of our lives and brothers' and sisters' lives and family members' lives that are so hard when it comes to marriage and divorce and when it comes to being widowed and bereaved. So we pray, Father, for your help now as we open your word. I pray specifically that your people would be edified and they would come to see the truth of your care for them. That They would feel it and know it. And I pray, Father, that you would use this word to make us holy and conform to your image. And that we would not be conformed to the patterns of this world but that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So, Father, do this. We pray that you would open up our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And we ask you to do it in the name of our King Jesus. Amen. It's no secret that the Pharisees had no real love lost for Jesus during his ministry. They did not like this new rival to their power and influence with the people. On numerous occasions, the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus. And every time they tried to do this, Jesus foiled their efforts. But still, they kept on trying to do this. And on one occasion, they put Jesus to the test by asking him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? Of course, they didn't really care about the answer to that question. They just wanted to trap Jesus into saying something that would discredit him in the eyes of the people. They were just trying to get a leg up on him in terms of popularity. And this issue of, of divorce was a contentious issue in Jesus' day because there was a dispute among the Jews over the meaning of Moses' divorce law. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, there was one school of thought that taught that divorce was only permissible on the grounds of sexual immorality. It's kind of the more narrow view. There was another school of thought that thought that a man could divorce his wife for any cause at all, literally, even for burning the dinner. If she displeased him in any way, he could just dismiss her. And the divorce law went one way. It went it, it, the, the man could do this to the woman, but the woman couldn't do this to the man. And so there was this dispute about it. Could this happen for any cause at all? Burning the dinner or only sexual immorality? Well, the any cause at all interpretation was the dominant interpretation uh, of the day. And men could dismiss their wives and completely leave them destitute for the slightest offense. That interpretation obviously played to the conceits of selfish husbands who could then change wives like they changed their socks because they could just dismiss an old wife for virtually any reason at all and then get remarried. So for those kinds of men, this was kind of an, you know, a popular interpretation of Moses' divorce law. The Pharisees knew that if they could get Jesus to speak against that kind of divorce, the divorce for any cause at all, 
then they would have him on the record on the wrong side, not only of Moses, but on the wrong side of popular opinion. And they wanted to nail Jesus in public. But Jesus didn't play those games with them. He was never interested in winning popularity contests or trimming his sails to accommodate the spirit of the age. He wasn't intimidated by Pharisees, and he didn't fear the crowd. He always spoke the truth, come what may. And so he laid out to them the truth of marriage. He said this, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, can you imagine Jesus turning to the most well-read people of his day over and over again and saying to them, have you not read? Jesus was not afraid to get in their face and tell them, you don't know what you're talking about. And you're not going to be trapping me. Jesus wasn't afraid of these people. He confronts their casual attitude about divorce by teaching them that the meaning of marriage is not summed up in Moses' divorce law in Deuteronomy 24, but in Moses' account of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. And there... In that text, we find that marriage is a covenanted sexual union between one man and one woman. And it's a covenant to which God himself bears witness and approval. For that reason, marriage, the marriage covenant, is the most binding of human covenants. It's a grave sin to separate what God has joined together. You're not just sinning against your spouse when you treat them the way these men were treating their, their wives by dismissing them, you're also thumbing your nose at the God who sanctions the covenant. Now, I would argue that the spirit of our own age is not so different than that of the Pharisees. And in many ways, I think that our age is worse. I mean, we would look back at contempt on this idea that a Jewish man could divorce his wife for any cause at all, even burning the dinner, and then leave her destitute. We look back at contempt with that. But do we think we are that much better in our own day when the norm in our culture is to divorce for no cause at all? In fact, we have a name for it. It's called no-fault divorce, which means that any spouse, for any reason or no reason at all, can decide to end the marriage. We have quite cavalier attitudes about these things. And it's kind of the third rail in churches. Nobody wants to talk about it. Guess what? The Bible talks about it. We're going to talk about it. Cavalier attitudes about divorce reveal a cavalier attitude about God. Why is that? Because if marriage is a covenant made before God, you can no more renegotiate the terms of the covenant than you can swim across the Pacific Ocean. In fact, you'd have a better shot at swimming across the Pacific Ocean than you would changing the terms of the marriage covenant because they're set by God. And to forsake that covenant is to forsake the will of the God who presides over that covenant. How many times have you heard somebody say, 
wishing that they could divorce their spouse because they have fallen out of love. You can fall out of love, but you can't fall out of the marriage covenant. A spouse can break the covenant, but you can't fall out of it, in and out of it, like it's just some kind of passing fancy. I want you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 16 this morning. And what we're going to do is we're going to try to trace the Apostle Paul's thinking on remarriage and divorce. All of chapter 7 is dealing with the ethics of marriage. We started this last week. The first half of chapter 7 focuses on those who are or who have been married. The second half of chapter 7, beginning about verse 25, is dealing with those who have never been married. Our last time together, we saw Paul's instructions to those who are married in verses 1 through 7. This week, we're going to examine his instructions to the once married widows and widowers, and to the still married, but who are thinking about divorce. So to the once married, to the widowed, he's going to say remarriage is permitted. To the still married, he's going to say divorce is prohibited, and mixed marriages are purified. So here, the three points are really simple. Remarriage permitted in verses 8 through 9. Divorce prohibited, verses 10 through 11. Mixed marriage purified in verses 12 through 16. Remarriage permitted, divorce prohibited, mixed marriage purified. So first thing is remarriage permitted. Everybody look at verse 9. Paul says this, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Now, if we want to understand how in the world this verse applies to us, we need to know, first of all, to whom it is addressed. In your English versions, it says something like, to the unmarried and to the widows. I think it's clear enough what Paul means by the word widow. He's referring, obviously, to any woman who has been married but whose husband has died. But to whom is Paul referring when he says the unmarried? And I want us to dig down deep on this for a minute. And I want you to stay with me here because we're going to get kind of deep in the weeds for a little bit. But I want you to understand who he's talking about when he talks about the unmarried. Some readers interpret the unmarried kind of generically as anyone who happens to be unmarried, regardless of how they got into that situation. And so on that view, they would think that the unmarried could include both the widowed, the divorced, people who were once married, and people who have never been married at all. So it's just sort of referring to all Christians who happen to be unmarried for whatever reason. I think that that interpretation is the wrong way to read this. Now, it may be that Paul's words here have implications for all who happen to be unmarried. But I think Paul's reference to the unmarried refers specifically to widowers. There are a number of reasons for this, and I want to try to, try to lay this out to you. And there are the number of reasons for this, not the, the least of which is the fact that the Greek word for widower was rarely used in ancient Greek and was never used in, in the period in which the, the New Testament was, was written. And so you don't have that word, like, uh, I'm not going to give you the Greek word, but the, the word that corresponds to our word widower appearing in their literature. They just didn't seem to use that word. And so it seems like they're using a substitute word for it. And here I think it's the, the, the term unmarried. For some reason, these first century speakers did not use that word widower. I think they probably didn't use it because of the negative social connotation attached to the term. In the first century, 
A widow was not merely bereft of her husband. She was often also destitute. It was a patriarchal culture. And to be without a husband was to be in an extremely vulnerable position. And that vulnerability is why widows and orphans are often paired together in the Bible. So if you look at James chapter 1, verse 27, it talks about caring for widows and orphans. They were, in a, they were extremely socially disadvantaged because there was no man there to take care of them. And so in that culture, a husband who lost his wife did not experience the same social hardship that a widow experienced. A widow is unmarried and destitute. But a man who loses his wife is simply unmarried. He's not destitute in that same way. And I suspect that's why Paul and other Greek writers did not use the term widower to refer to such men. They were simply, these men were just unmarried. If you look at verse 11, the same word for unmarried appears, and it clearly refers to somebody who was previously married. Verse 34, an unmarried person is distinguished from virgins, those who have never been married. So verse 11 and 34, clearly unmarried refers to people who were previously married. I think it's the same thing in verse 8, the verse we're looking at. It's also referring to someone who was previously married, and, and because it's paired with the widows and the gender is masculine, it seems like Paul means to address those who were previously married but whose spouses have passed away. Is everybody tracking with me here at this point? So what is Paul saying then? He's not talking to unmarried people generally. He's talking to widowers, and he's talking to widows. What is he saying to them? He says, it's good for them to remain single as I am. Now, I would tweak one small thing about that rendering. It, I don't think it's as literal as it could be. There's actually no word in the original text that corresponds to the word in your English text, single. Okay? So if you were just to drop the word single out, it would read like this. It is good for them to remain as I am. That's what he says literally. It's good for them, these widows and widowers, to remain as I am. Remain means to continue on in a certain state of existence. In their case, what was that state of existence? It was their widowhood. And Paul says, as I am. That suggests, I believe, that Paul is putting himself into the same category as those people that he's writing to. It is not a category of singleness in general, but a category of widowhood in particular. And it's for that reason that many interpreters, including myself, many interpreters believe that these words imply that Paul was previously married. I don't believe it's the case that Paul was never married. In fact, it would have been nearly unthinkable to imagine a never married Pharisee as a quote-unquote, Pharisee of Pharisees, like Paul called himself. He referred to himself that way in Philippians. If he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he would have been exemplary, which means he would have been fulfilling the creation mandate to be fruitful and to multiply, which means he almost certainly would have been married at some point in his life. And verse 8, I think, is hinting at the fact that he was in fact married but is now widowed, and he is classing himself with those other widows and widowers in the church. And he's saying to them, I want you to remain as I am. And so how has Paul spent his life 
since becoming a widower. He has, at least since he met Jesus on that Damascus road, he has been completely devoting himself to the gospel ministry. Marriage has certain responsibilities that come with it, and he was thrilled to remain free from those responsibilities so that he could pursue with single-minded devotion the ministry to which God had called him. Now think about it. Could Paul have traveled all over the Roman world for two decades if he had a wife and children at home that he needed to care for? No, obviously not. Peter, the apostle Peter, for, for example, was married. His ministry focused in and around Jerusalem. He didn't go very far from home, at least not in the early days. But Jesus called Paul to go to the uttermost part of the earth. And I think when Paul says it's good for them to remain as I am, I think he's simply expressing here that it's good for widows and widowers to choose to remain unattached for those kinds of purposes. They don't have to feel any pressure to remarry simply because they were married before. Remember, verses 1 through 7, he's saying, let each man have his own wife. Let each wife have her own husband. Well, what happens if my spouse dies? Paul says, it's okay. You can remain just as I am. You don't have to feel constrained to get remarried just because you were previously married. In fact, I think he's saying that God may give such people a post-marriage life like God gave to Paul. Maybe not completely identical, but something like it. And if he does, it's not a less than life. It is a glorious calling to remain unmarried. And that's why Paul says it's good if they remain that way. But then he qualifies. Look at verse 9. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry For it is better to marry than to burn. Now, some people have read this as kind of a a cynical view on marriage, but I don't think it really represents that at all. The text actually doesn't say that if they cannot exercise self-control. It just says if they are not exercising self-control. But it's not talking about the self-control in the sense that we talk about self-control as a fruit of the Spirit. Like in Galatians 5, it's a different word here. And it simply refers to to the fact that some people may find that their desire for marital relations to be a constant distraction. And Paul is simply saying that if you find yourself in that situation, then you should get married. Of course, Paul understands that not everybody's going to have the same opportunities to marry. So what I think he's saying is that it's good and right to pursue marriage if or when God provides the opportunity for that. It's totally fine to to pursue that. And he's saying here, look, my example, remaining unattached, remaining unmarried, should not constrain at all a believing widow or widower from remarrying. If that's what you want to do, then do it. Why? Well, he says it. For it is better to marry than to burn. Literally, it's just better to marry than to burn with no qualification. And that can mean one of two things. It can mean it's better to marry than to burn with passion, like it says in the ESV. Or it can mean it is better to marry than to burn in judgment. So that you give in to these desires and you end up getting judged for it. So those are two possible interpretations here. And when I first started teaching as a college professor... I was actually teaching this very text in one of my classes. This is like over a decade ago. 
And I had a classroom of undergraduates before me as I was teaching this, and all of whom were in the vicinity of 18 to 21 years of age, except for one student. There was this one elderly widow who was 83 years old, and she had decided that she wanted to come back to school and learn the Bible. And it was awesome that she was in there with all these students. And uh, she was giving herself to this, and she wasn't daunted by it at all. And I was teaching on this text about widows. And when I laid out these interpretive options, that it means, well, it's better to marry than to burn with passion or to burn in judgment, I said it could go either way here. She kind of spoke up and interjected without raising her hand with force and conviction. And she said, oh, I think it means to burn with passion. No question. And I remember at that moment, I was kind of stunned because it was clear that she hadn't really studied this before, but she spoke with great confidence about her interpretation. And I try not to break into too big of a smile as the realization came over me that I think that she was giving us more of a testimony than exegesis. But I never forgot what she said because I think she was right. I think what she said actually rang really true. I think she understood exactly what this text was saying. And she spoke from experience, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Marriage is certainly a better alternative to the constant distraction of a desire for marital relations. If that is a constant distraction for you, and if you are in that situation in this room, and if that is a constant distraction for you, and especially if God brings some particular person into your life, who is a believer like you are, you are just fine to go ahead and get married. Don't feel constrained by Paul's example to not be married. Go ahead and get married and don't look back. Staying unmarried like Paul is a good thing. But guess what? Getting married is good too. They're both good. Each one has his own calling from the Lord. And we come to know that calling through the gifts and through the opportunities that God providentially gives to us or withholds from us. And if God gives you the opportunity to be married and you want to get married, then, then go for it. If that opportunity doesn't come your way, even though you wish it would come your way, you just need to keep in mind what Paul says. Paul says that you are in a better position. From his perspective, it's better to remain unmarried. That means that you need to steward that calling for as long as you have it, ask God to make the paths plain for the unmarried calling that he's given to you. It may be a season. It may be for life. Who knows? God will make that plain in due time. In the meantime, don't despair of the calling that he gives to you. Lean into that calling for God's glory. So Paul's message to the once married widows and widowers is simple. If you want to get remarried, that's fine. Remarriage is permitted. In verses 10 and following, Paul now turns his attention to those who are still married, but who are thinking about divorcing. And he says this. He says, divorce is permitted. So take a look at verse 10. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. Now, that this charge has the voice of a has the force of a command, I think that's clear enough, especially since Paul says that this is not 
his command, but it's from the Lord. Which, when Paul uses that term Lord, he's not referring to God generically. He's referring to the Lord Jesus in particular. And in this case, he means to say that Jesus himself prohibited divorce during his earthly ministry. And by Paul's time, Jesus' teaching on divorce was well known by all the apostles, including Paul. And so the very first thing that Paul wishes to do is to affirm what Jesus taught about divorce. And that's what he's doing in verses 10 and 11. And you know that teaching about divorce, Jesus is teaching about divorce, because I just told it to you at the beginning of the sermon. I didn't mention this before, but that story was taken from Matthew chapter 19. And so Paul knew about this teaching. Don't know if he knew about Matthew, but he knew about Jesus' teaching on this point. And Jesus says that no man should separate what God has joined together, which means that Jesus prohibited divorce. In Matthew 19, however, Jesus gives one exception to that, doesn't he? And I believe that Paul assumes that exception in his teaching in 1 Corinthians 7. So you don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. But this is Matthew 19, verses 7 through 9. This is what Jesus said. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He, Jesus, said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to, to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. Meaning, you're so fixated on Deuteronomy 24 and the divorce law, you don't see God's original design for marriage, which was given in Genesis 1 and 2. From the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Jesus explains to them that divorce was never God's design for marriage. God's design is permanence and faithfulness. Nevertheless, because people are sinful, Moses has a provision for divorce in Deuteronomy 24. But Jesus is trying to get them to see that divorce was not God's design. In fact, if there is a divorce, there has been a sin somewhere. And their fixation on the divorce law reveals that they're not fixated on what God's design is. For from the beginning it was not so. Because the marriage covenant is permanent... It should only be dissolved by death. Jesus says that whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. It's adultery because the original marriage covenant is still in effect. And that covenant precludes a sexual relationship and a marriage to another person. Because you're already in a marriage covenant. So you can't enter into that kind of a relationship with somebody else. Otherwise, it's adultery. But there's one exception to this. Jesus says, except for sexual immorality. This means that it would not be adultery for him to divorce and remarry if his wife committed sexual immorality. In that case, she would have dissolved the previous marriage covenant by her sexual immorality, thereby releasing him from that bond. I think Paul had all of that in mind when he's reaffirming the Lord's teaching in verse 10. He's saying, I have a command for you, not me. This is from the Lord. He taught about this when he was here. And that's why he says in verse 11, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Because the marriage covenant is permanent, 
She is not free to remarry simply because she tries to drop her first husband. If she sinfully divorces her husband, then she has two choices. Be reconciled to her husband or remain unmarried. And then Paul says this. He says, and the husband should not divorce his wife. By which Paul means that everything that Paul just said about the wife applies equally to the husband. Who would, who would be interested in divorcing his wife? The husband should not divorce his wife, but if he does, he has two choices. Remain unmarried or be reconciled to his wife. So this is Paul's teaching on divorce. And Paul's trying to say that there's no daylight between him and Jesus on this. This is what Jesus taught. No divorce, no remarriage, unless there has been sexual immorality in the, in the equation. I think John Calvin captures the spirit of this really well in um, his comments on Genesis 2.24. Calvin says this. He says, They who for slight causes rashly allow of divorces violate in one single particular all the laws of nature and reduce them to nothing. If we should make it a point of conscience not to separate a father from his son, it is still greater wickedness to dissolve the bond which God has preferred to all others. I think Calvin got this right. I think he is seeing the sacredness of the marriage covenant. The marriage bond is a bond which God has preferred to all others. God designed the marriage covenant to be permanent because he meant for it to be a cosmic expression of God's own love for his people. Indeed, of Jesus' own love for his bride, the church. To forsake that covenant, therefore, is to take this little icon of the gospel and to distort it into a blasphemy against God's commitment to his covenant. Do you see your marriage in that bigger frame? For those of you who are married in here, is that how you view your marriage? Do you see the success or failure of your marriage within the wider purposes of God? God intends for your marriage to be a picture of Christ's love for the church, a picture to the world. He intends for husbands to self-sacrificially love their wives like Christ loves the church. He does not intend for them to despise their wives by getting tired of them or treating them shabbily or with indifference. Nor does he intend for wives to treat their husbands in that way. But here's the thing. If you do treat one another that way and you gather up enough years of that kind of neglect, one or both spouses are eventually going to start to feel like their marriage is hanging on by a very thin thread. And they're going to start feeling like I have fallen out of love. <clears throat> and they're going to start feeling like they're ready to move on and they're going to start feeling like divorce. But with the authority of Jesus, Paul is saying, you can't do that. You are not allowed to forsake the covenant with your spouse. Rather, Paul is saying that you're supposed to let your covenant sanctify you. In other words, you're supposed to forsake all the self-serving behavior that has brought you to the brink and to return in repentance and fidelity to your spouse. You remember the terms of your covenant, and when you don't feel like staying in the marriage, you let the covenant keep you in the marriage. Until you feel like it again. And you work and you work and you pray until you feel like it again. 
Our culture is telling you to turn away from your marriage when you feel like you just don't want to be there anymore. And we have this thing called no-fault divorce, which is really just unilateral divorce on demand. That's what it is. And it's a disgrace. And it's not supposed to be something that marks us and our witness to the community. It is not what God has called us to. For any couples in here this morning who may be struggling in your own marriage, I I believe that this word is for you. If there's been no sexual immorality and yet you both are thinking about throwing in the towel on your marriage, don't. Don't. You stay with it. You repent. You ask for forgiveness. And you keep working on your marriage. And if you need help with something, come find somebody that you can talk to and ask for help. I would love to talk to you. Any elder would. Any person in your small group would. Don't wait for the wheels to come completely off before you ask for help. But just hang in there. Just hang in there. So Paul is saying remarriage is permitted. Divorce is prohibited. But finally, verse 12, mixed marriages purified. Everybody look at verse 12. Paul says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now, Paul says that this is what he says, not the Lord. Did you catch that in verse 12? To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. Have you ever read that and thought, uh, hey, Paul, uh, we don't really need your uninspired personal opinions here. Let's just stick with what Jesus said, okay? Why do we have to insert this little thing here that you're thinking in your brain that may or may not be right? I mean, it almost sounds like Paul is giving us some optional advice here because it's not really from Jesus. Has it ever appeared that way to you when you read that verse? I used to think that, and I really didn't know what to make of this in light of the fact that I'm supposed to believe that all Scripture is inspired. It turns out I was wrong about that. Paul is not offering up his private, uninspired opinion here. All of Paul's opinions are inspired in this text. In fact, he says as much in verse 25. Verse 25, he says, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Which means I may have some teaching directly from the Lord that I'm communicating to you, like he just did in verses 10 and 11, but I also will render an opinion sometimes on areas that the Lord did not necessarily directly address in his earthly ministry. And when I do, my opinion is trustworthy by the mercy of the Lord. Which means it's equally authoritative. You need to listen to it. So when Paul says, I say this, not the Lord, he's simply saying that the Lord Jesus didn't address that particular situation in his earthly ministry. When Jesus taught on this, he was addressing Jews, right? All of them were the people of God under the old covenant. Paul's in an entirely different situation writing to the the Corinthians. He's writing to a primarily Gentile church. Many of the members became Christians right out of paganism. And many of them were converted to Christ while their their spouses remained pagans. And so Paul is answering a question that clearly those converts would have had. Their question is this. If I am supposed to live a holy life as a Christian, doesn't my marriage and sexual bond to a non-Christian defile me? 
Can you see how these new Christians would be asking that? They, they've been saved and sanctified by Jesus, but now they find themselves in a, they're in a marriage. They're already married to this pagan who doesn't believe in Jesus, who's still worshiping idols, still frequenting the idols' temples. What are we supposed to do about that? Maybe we should divorce those unbelieving spouses. That's what Paul was facing. Their question, it's not really a bad question, is it? It's a question that anybody reading the Old Testament would ask. What happened to a person in the Old Testament when a person ate an unclean animal? If you ate an unclean animal, you became unclean. What happened to a person, a Jew in the Old Testament, if they touched a leper? You became unclean. You had to go outside of the camp for a while. What happened to a person in the Old Testament who touched a dead body? That person became unclean. You weren't supposed to touch dead bodies. It makes you ceremonially unclean. The Old Testament was really clear about this. The unclean defiles and corrupts the clean. And you got these new Christians reading their Old Testament and they're thinking, I'm being defiled by this spouse who's unclean. But didn't Jesus himself reverse this principle in his own ministry? What happened when Jesus came into contact with unclean food? Mark 7. He didn't become unclean. He declared all foods clean. What happened when Jesus touched lepers? Jesus did not become unclean when he touched lepers. He made the leper clean and healed. What happens when Jesus touched dead bodies? He did not become unclean. The dead bodies came back to life and were clean. Jesus reversed the idea that the unclean defiles and corrupts the clean. And with new covenant, messianic power, he showed us that God himself cleanses and sanctifies the unclean. And Jesus told his people that they would do greater works than he did. And Paul, I think, is simply applying new covenant, messianic power to these mixed marriages. You got believers and unbelievers. And he's saying to these sweet new Christians, listen, you are not going to be defiled by being faithful to your unbelieving spouse. Your spouse and your children are going to be made clean by you. That's what's going to happen with new covenant messianic power. That's why he says in verse 14 what he says. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. I love what Paul is doing here. Paul is giving such hope and power to these new Christians. He's saying, you're not unclean. On the contrary, your whole family is made clean by you. And they're made clean in this sense. It's not that they automatically just become magically Christians. They're made clean in this sense. The entire family comes under the influence of the gospel for as long as you are there. If you leave, so do their prospects to believe and to be saved. You abandon them to their paganism. He's saying, you don't leave, you stay. And you watch and you see what God does. Maybe not in a week or a month or a year or two years or ten years. You stay and you be faithful and you watch how God gives power to your witness, to your family. Don't divorce your family in an effort to, to be holy. 
Stay with your family. Come what may. So that God can use you to make them holy in Jesus' name. Now, what if your unbelieving spouse doesn't want to stay with you? Even though you're willing to stay with the unbelieving spouse. Well, this is what Paul says in verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Or you might translate it, is not under bondage. God has called you to peace. If the unbelieving spouse deserts the marriage and just won't have anything to do with it anymore, Paul's saying that the believing spouse is no longer bound to the marriage. And this is where Paul, I think he makes a substantive addition to our understanding of permissible divorce. Jesus says it's permissible in cases of sexual immorality. Now Paul is saying that it's permissible in cases where this unbelieving spouse deserts the believing spouse. And I think in this case, remarriage is permissible in those cases of desertion. Why? Because Paul says that the deserted spouse is no longer under bondage in cases of desertion. And the word he uses is a related concept to the same word that he, to the word that he uses in verse 39. If you look at verse 39 where he says that a wife is no longer bound to her husband after he dies and that she's free to remarry. I think this, he's, saying, he's putting the deserted spouse in that same category. Since the deserted spouse is no longer under bondage in verse 14, that spouse too would be free to remarry only in the Lord, he says. In other words, you don't just marry anybody. You marry somebody who's walking with Jesus. But that case of desertion, I think actually that's an aside here. Paul's main exhortation is for the believing spouse to hang in there in the marriage. He wants the marriage to be sanctified, and he wants the believing spouse to do whatever they can to make it work. Why? Verse 16. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? That's why. For those of you here who are laboring in a mixed marriage, a believer and an unbeliever, are you laboring in the hope that Paul gives you here? It may feel like your piety and devotion to the Lord is going nowhere, but don't believe it. You never know what God will do with your godly witness and example over time. Even when it's really hard, you're making a bigger dent than you know. Last week I finished watching uh, this movie, The Case for Christ. It's on Netflix now. Anybody see it? Case for Christ? Sometimes these Christian movies I don't think are very good. This one was actually pretty good. Um, but the, the, book, the movie, The Case for Christ, is based on the book, a memoir by Lee Strobel, who's an evangelical Christian. And the book and the movie are about Lee Strobel's journey from atheism to faith in Jesus. And if you read the book, the book really, the accent is on Lee's intellectual journey. He set out to disprove the Christian faith. He was an atheist. And he was using his investigative skills as a journalist at the Chicago Tribune to disprove the faith, everything he could find out about it. But as he dug into the claims of Christianity, he began to see all of his historical and scientific objections, they just dissolved under the weight of the historical record that seemed to confirm the bodily resurrection of, of Jesus. And so the book really focuses on this intellectual journey of discovery and faith. That's what the book focuses on. But this movie that I just watched 
it focuses on his relationship to his wife. His, wife was, his wife's name's Leslie. And, and the whole, it turns out the whole reason that he set out on his journey to disprove Christianity is because his wife got saved. And after she converted, he thought she had become some kind of an evangelical fanatic. In fact, he, he thought that he, she had joined a cult. And he wanted his old, unbelieving wife back. And so he was trying to disprove the faith so he could get the unbelieving wife back. He wanted to prove her wrong. And he got nasty and cross with her. He was mean to her. But no matter how cross and nasty he got with her, she just hung in there with him. She prays for him. She weeps. She prays some more. She reads her Bible. She prays her Bible for her husband. And she never stops loving him or being faithful to him. And Lee finally confesses to her that not only was he unable to disprove her faith, he was unable to disprove her love. She was different, and it gripped Lee how much God had changed her life, and he couldn't deny it. I think that's what Paul means by, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So if you're in this situation, you hang in there, and you pray, and you read your Bible, and you pray some more, and you pray your Bible for your spouse, and you be patient, and you love your spouse, and you see what God might do. God knows where you are, and he will give you the grace and the endurance for the marriage that you were called in. So Paul says remarriage permitted for the widows and the widowers. Divorce is prohibited for the married, and mixed marriages are purified. You know, the reason we talk about marriage, first of all, just in the Bible, we talk about controversial things, not because we just want to be controversial. We talk about it because it's in the Bible. And we want to think God's thoughts after him, which means we need to think the way that God thinks about marriage and about divorce. And we need to take account of our own lives and to make sure we are not being accommodated to the way that our world thinks about these things and lives their lives out with such a cavalier attitude towards marriage. So we care about it because it's in the Bible. We also care about it because marriage is, at the end of the day, our marriages are not ends within themselves. Our marriages are meant to be testimonies to the gospel of Jesus about how Christ loved his church. That's the gospel. Christ lo so loved the world, God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Which means, Jesus is God's son, and he came and gave his life on behalf of sinners because he loves them, not because they deserve it. And he rescues them from the consequences of their sin and from the power of their sin. And he says, any person can be saved from their sin and be reconciled to God just simply by believing in Jesus and what he's done. That's the message of the gospel, and that's why we think marriage is so important. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us through Christ. And Father, I do pray for the marriages in this room. I pray for all of those who are struggling for whatever reason, that you would help them to just hang in there and to come back to faithfulness and fidelity, to repent and to forgive. 
and to be humble. Father, I pray for those who are here who may be married to an unbelieving spouse. I pray that you would give them patience, endurance, and perseverance. Give them a real and genuine love for their spouse that's undeniable and that their spouse can't ignore. Father, I pray for those who are in here who, as a part of their lives, they maybe have a divorce in their past and they are walking with you now. I pray that you enable them to be faithful now and that they would not be covered up with depression or undue sadness about the past that you've brought them out of. I pray that you would bring gospel comfort to those hearts. I pray for those that you've called to be unmarried, whether they want to be unmarried or not, whether they are widowers or have never been married. Father, I pray that you would give strength and hope to the calling that you've given to them, that they would love you and be faithful to you. And I pray that you would, for every person in this church, divorced, married, widowed, never married, never want to be married, I pray that you would sew all of our hearts together. Give us unity of purpose and of vision that even in our different callings, you've given us one purpose, one gospel, one ministry. So, Father, we pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.